Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to the first of two political party specials recorded at the Edinburgh Festival. This first episode features Kezia Dugdale, the former leader of Scottish Labour. Kezia is someone, I think we're the same age, or maybe she's a year or two older or younger than me, which just shows how quickly politics is changing and how volatile it is. This is someone who rose to prominence as deputy leader of Scottish Labour, then became leader, and already is on the other side uh, of that leadership role, uh, and works uh, does brilliant work at the John Smith Centre at Glasgow University which we talk about. But her story is one that really demonstrates the volatility of modern politics. But she has a very positive outlook, not just on politics, but on life. And this interview, I think, well, take what you will from it, of course, but I found it a hugely positive experience. And I think she has a brilliant philosophy uh, about politics and a brilliant approach to it, that uh, given how divisive things are and can be, um, just keeps things in check a little bit. And it, I found it hugely reassuring. Uh, she was a brilliant person to speak to. She obviously led Scottish Labour during an incredible period in its history. We talk about all of that and all the things that you would imagine we would talk about doing it in Scotland. So please enjoy the fantastic Kezia Dugdale. Thank you very much. Hello, Edinburgh. Hello, thank you so much for coming to this very special uh, edition of The Political Party, which is a podcast uh, I usually record in London's West End and are brought to the Edinburgh Festival for two special shows. And today's guest is someone that I've wanted to interview for a very long time and is uh, a, uh, a, a phenomenal politician, someone whose bright talent burned very quickly and already at a very young age is already on the other side of a phenomenal political career. Someone who's held... That was meant as a compliment, not as a joke. <laughs> That was, that was genuine. Uh, but it's very rare that you get someone as young uh, as today's guest who's already tasted leadership and has already moved on to other things. Uh, someone who led the Labour Party up here through some incredible years. Someone who's hugely popular across Scotland and, of course, uh, across the UK. Please give a huge welcome to Kessia Dugdale. <laughs> Kessia, welcome to the show. Thanks, good to be here. People laughed when I said that. I, I hope you didn't think I was, I was taking the piss. But it, you seem very young to have already experienced leadership and to have already moved on. Do, do you feel like it's all happened very quickly? Oh, I'm flattered by the, the young bit. I'm going to be 38 in a, in a week's time. So I, I guess, yeah, a lot has happened in that time. I mean, that's just... Inc- I mean, I'm 36. Okay. So, I mean, it's not... All right. Well, no... <laughs> But to think that, you know, in two years I could have led a party and then not led a party, you know, gone through everything so quickly. I mean, at the time, did it feel like it was all happening very quickly or did they, did they feel like very long years? No, and I, and I talked about it before. I did one interview where I said, uh, you know, I was very aware my political career was on a meteoric rise. And the thing about meteors is that they go up very quickly and they come down and they crash and burn. I, I saw it all coming in that sense. And I also always said I, I didn't want to do it forever. I wanted to do it for as long as I had the same passion for it on the first day uh, as I did on the last. And I think when you wake up and realise that maybe you could make a difference somewhere else, then you should just do that. I mean, you, you led 
Scottish Labour, an incredible time. And let's sort of just move back before you were leader. You were deputy leader to Jim Murphy. Yep. Uh, and that included the period during the 2014 <laughs> referendum campaign. Yeah. Uh, do you have happy memories of that time? Depends who the audience is, doesn't it, really? <laughs> Um, it was well, yeah. I think it was, uh, on the whole, a hugely positive experience for the country because, for the first time, it felt like everybody was engaged in a debate about their own future. And I think that was borne out by the fact that um, the turnout was, you know, nearly 85% across the country. I don't think anybody can um, discourage that or, or not welcome that or not want every election for people to be so actively engaged in the issues and then to go out and vote. But sure, it had its moments. Um, and I think um, regardless of whether you're yes or no, you would remember days that were really hard or days that were really good. That's just kind of politics, really. And in terms of how the campaign was run, obviously there was the Better ca- Together campaign that was a cross-party Labour, Tory, Lib Dem, um, and I suppose associ- uh, associated, uh, assorted others. The Orange um, Lodge and the like. The Orange Lodge, yes, they were, they were highly influential. Um, <laughs> I mean, do you, reflecting on that campaign, do you think that you know, a cross-party campaign was the right thing to do, or do you think it would have been better to have separate campaigns? Well, it depends um, in whose interest you're talking about. So if you're talking about the, the national interest, then yes, it was right that all the political parties um, combined together under one banner um, to argue from their own perspectives what they thought was in the best interest of their country. It was not a good thing for the Labour Party. And I think you see um, quite readily people now saying they wouldn't do it again. So if there is to be a second independence referendum, um, Labour's already said they they wouldn't be part of any um, cross-party effort in a a referendum, which makes sense if if you've had the experience they've had, until you look at the Electoral Commission rules and you realise there has to be just two sides and this is just how it works. So it's quite difficult times ahead, I think. Well, yes, and, and not just because of uh, any uh, second independence referendum, but uh, Boris Johnson is now Prime Minister of the UK. I mean, do you think that makes it easier or harder to make the case for Scotland staying in? <laughs> I, I think you have your answer there. Um, you, you can't lose sight of the fact that, that Scotland voted differently on the European question by quite a country margin. Um, country margin. Uh, 62%. Sorry? You are? My cup. Was that better? So it's 60- a very helpful heckle, actually. actually <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cheers, mate. So 62% of Scotland voted to remain. We know that. But in this city, it was even higher. In Edinburgh South constituency, it was over 80%. And, you know, that's a university community. Lots of EU nationals living in it. it. It's part of who they are. It affects their right to be here. It's very real. And people are very angry about it. And then on top of that, we now have Boris Johnson as the Prime Minister, who represents a party that, again not a huge amount of people voted for at the last election, um, more than voted Labour, but still, um, not, isn't, they don't hold the majority view. And in terms of, in terms of the Conservatives in, in Scotland, it's obviously an issue for Ruth Davidson. She's been uh, anti-Boris Johnson, really, um, as, as many people have here. Uh, you know Ruth well. I mean, how do you think she'll deal with the juggling act of keeping the Scottish Tory brand separate from Boris Johnson's No Deal UK version? I'm just an observer on politics now. I I lead a non-partisan organisation called the John Smith Centre, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, in a wee while. Um, But looking at Ruth's situation, she spent so long trying to carve out um, Ruth Davidson's Conservatives and everything is about her and how she presents herself and how she's different. Um, more centre-right than right, um, talking about different issues in Scotland. 
that's going to be harder for her now when everything is about Brexit. It's going to be harder for her to have meaningful, constructive, positive things to say in that. And I think she might find herself where I was and where previous Labour leaders have been, where you make the news more often because of what's happening in your own party rather than what's happening in the world at large. In terms of Labour's, uh, at a UK level, um, Labour's approach to uh, a second independence referendum, Corbyn recently suggested that he wouldn't stand in the way of a, of a second referendum. There's always been a sense with Corbyn that anyway, he probably supported Scottish independence. I mean, is that, is, is that a sense you ever got from him? No. <laughs> Did you get any sense out of him? <laughs> so... <laughs> So, so here's the thing, I never doubted um, his sincerity on the question of the United Kingdom. Um, uh, he gets it, and he gets it from a sort of solidarity perspective. I, if I'm honest, I did doubt where he stood on the EU question, and you know there was all that debate around the time about whether Labour was doing enough to campaign for Remain. You know, if he said more in working-class communities about the benefits of the EU to them, if he was more positive about immigration, uh, if he didn't suggest that um, EU migrants were somehow undercutting the wages of British people, which is just not true. Um, then we might have had a different result. So um, that was the only time I felt the need to kind of front him out on it. And, and I phoned him up and I said, I'm really sorry, I've just got to ask you this one-to-one, -one. did you vote Remain? And he said, yes. So I, I, I've taken him out his word on that and I think everybody else should because we don't have a huge amount in public life if we don't have trust. And what was your relationship with him like? One of your predecessors, Johan Lamont, had said that uh, Scottish Labour was like a, a regional office or a branch office of the Labour Party nationally. Was that your experience of leading it? No, because I can honestly like eyeball you and say nobody ever told me what to do across the whole of the UK party. Nobody ever tried to instruct me or direct me. I was very much in charge of setting out the leadership direction of the party in Scotland and what I thought needed to happen. Um, my analysis of why we've gone from having 41 to just one MP in the general election immediately after the independence referendum was in part um, because we'd been in better together with the Conservatives and there was a lot of people who'd voted yes in working class communities who just couldn't forgive us for that. But the, the other uh, aspect of it was they felt like a feeling, an emotion, that Scottish Labour was being told what to do by its Westminster masters. Mm. So everything I set out to do as part of my leadership strategy was to try and, and quell that, at the very least neutralise it, if not prove I was my own kind of leader in that sense. So I pushed for party autonomy, we got control of the rule book, we did all our own selections, we took policy decisions in reserved areas, we changed the position on Trident, all of the stuff to show that we could. And that's all been undone now. That's all been uh, uh, undone, do you think, mainly by the party at a UK level or the party at a Scottish level? Well, um, when you were talking about Corbyn earlier, I thought you uh, were kind of hinting towards you know, John McDonnell's um, yeah. uh, interventions in the last uh, week or so. And I think that's an example of um, just how that looks is what's so bad about it. Forget, if you can, for a second, the nature of what he said and the context and what, of how he said it, yeah. the look it's bad, it's really bad. You said uh, in an interview a few years ago that in your role as leader of Scottish Labour, you, the, the role of leader of Scottish Labour involved uh, telling, um, telling older men no. Yeah. Um, just to clarify, <laughs> in, in, what, in what way do you mean that? So I think it's really important to, um, 
to take the time to speak to your elders, uh, people with more experience, especially when you're the age I was. So I'm, you know, I was 33 when I was deputy leader. I was 33 when I was leader. Right? That's how fast things happened. So there's a lot of senior people with more experience in politics than I did. Um, wanting to offer me advice and that advice would sometimes turn into I think you should do this which would then turn into um, you're going to do this and that would be when I would have to say no I'm not and the party isn't doing that either and you can do it if you like but you won't be doing it with Scottish Labour resources and then kind of put the phone down and go oh my god what did I just do <laughs> um, but yeah I had to do that repeatedly and it got easier but everything I was doing as leader I was doing for the first time and learning from it every step do you remember any of the things that people suggested you should do? Any particularly bad ideas? <laughs> any particularly bad ideas? Um, no, but I, um, when I was deputy leader and I was standing to be leader, I got a bunch of um, my political friends together um, from different parts of the party, from all over the country, and we spent, uh, I think, a day, maybe two days, definitely a day, kind of in a hotel, working out what the strategy was going to be, because I didn't um, just automatically want to be leader when the vacancy came around. I took a bit of time to think about it, and I thought, I'm only going to do this if I have a plan, if I actually think there's something I can contribute to turn this around. So um, we went away and we did all these kind of like mind maps and pulled together a plan. And uh, one of those people um, who's now working in a university environment emailed me it the other day, this like four page summary of the discussion that yeah. we'd had. And I was going, yeah, it was, it was fascinating because it's like, be strong on the union. Don't ever say anything that makes you sound like a secret gnat. Uh, well, that went well. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, the last thing on this list was get a puppy. I, yeah, I, I, and quite recently I did get a puppy, so quite clearly that worked. So, so I, I love these ideas, you know, it's almost like the Granita deal or whatever, when a, a politician decides perhaps they're going to go for something and the people they surround themselves with and the places where it happened. So what hotel was it? Premier Inn? I can't, no, I, I, I can't remember for sure. I think it was the melting pot on Rose Street here in Edinburgh. I think that's yeah. where we did it. Yeah. Did you do a good breakfast? No, there was no food. No, no food? No food, no. There's a Sainsbury's downstairs. I think maybe we just went and got, got sandwiches and stuff. It wasn't, I don't want to go away thinking it was in any way glamorous. No. Um, in terms of the people that you took advice from, um, was Jim Murphy an influential figure for you? No. Um, I, I don't mean that in a, in a derogatory fashion. Um, I'm pretty sure... No, in fact, I know um, that before Jim became leader and I became deputy leader, we'd only ever spoken to each other once before. So there, and it's happening in the SNP now, I think, where there's just a big cultural difference between the group of MSPs and the group of MPs. Yes. And the way that their lives work and how busy they are means that rarely do they actually ever see each other. Unless they share geography in their constituency, of course, then they do. So um, kind of, they become creatures of habit in their own environment. So there was no reason for my path and Jim Murphy's path um, to ever uh, kind of cross each other and the one time um, that we did speak I remember he phoned me um, and this was in the midst of the UK uh, Labour leadership contest to ask me to back David Miliband and I, uh, I said no I was voting for Ed Miliband so the first and only thing I'd ever done was again say no. <laughs> and in terms of uh, your relationship with Ed Miliband um, in a political sense um, how did you find him in terms of the relationship between London and and Holyrood. I really liked him. Um, he, he's quite a, a, he's, he's a lovable character. He's quite a complex character. Um, he's very interested in you know good music and, and literature, and he, he's a big fan of podcasts. He's always got kind of chat around stuff like that. I got on really well with him. Still do. 
And it, you, you helped him out in terms of preparing <laughs> for a TV debate. For, it, so it was for the leaders' debates in the 2015 general election. That's right, yeah. So I was, um, I was deputy leader of the Labour Party for all of that time. And uh, I, think, I think it's fair to say um, Ed was really worried about the TV debates going up against David Cameron. And there was all the uh, debate around how many of the TV debates would have all six leaders on it. So he knew um, he was going to have to come up against Nicola Sturgeon for the first time. Um, the Greens were involved and Natalie Bennett was the leader then. And you had Leanne Wood from Plaid Cymru and um, Nick Clegg as well. So there was a lot of preparing to do for that. And Ed spent an inordinate amount of time preparing for these TV debates. And what was your role? I was Nicola Sturgeon. <laughs> so, I mean, can you do an impression of Nicola Sturgeon? No, and you know, that really frustrated me because um, some of the other people who were playing other people did the accents. And oh, I was man. like, I was so mad because Natalie Bennett was Australian, so like... Aisha Hazarika, um, who I think has a show here for a bit of the fringe, she did Natalie and did the accent, and I just thought that was incredible. But I, I was so focused on trying to get inside the head of Nicola Surgeon to think like Nicola and then speak like Nicola and then use the lines she was likely to use. And that was across every policy area. I mean, don't get me wrong, it, it, this wasn't just like for an afternoon in the 2015 election. This was um, four or five consecutive days followed by eight consecutive days. So I, I spent the first bit, you know, in a kind of country house somewhere in England and then that full-on week um, in the Pullman Hotel on Euston Road in London. Where, so Ed would get up, he would go and do one of these visits, eat a bacon roll, uh, <laughs> come back, and then he would prepare for the TV debates from like 12 in the afternoon until 8 at night. And I just sat there in Nicola Sturgeon's skin for all of that time. And do, do you think that that intense focus... Went on... well, didn't it? Well... Well, I suppose you, you helped him make it go less bad. <laughs> you trained him. Spin, yeah. You know, is a, is, a, is a way of looking at it. Um, after, you know, focusing on an individual for so long and how they think and how they would answer any question, do you feel like you kind of can still have that aspect on, on Nicola Sturgeon, that you, you totally understand how she thinks? Well, I can do it for any politician. So, like, to be good in debates, you have to take the time to understand why people who disagree with you hold the views that they do. Um, I think that's common decency from a starting point. You can't just assume that they're wrong and you dislike them because of what they represent. You have to understand their ideology. And then it also helps you argue. So if you know what they're going to say, you can preempt it into how you construct what you're going to say. You can have your rebuttal all lined up. So, especially when you're preparing for something like First Minister's Questions, if you know she's going to use figure X then you can work on a witty reply to that and have it in the bank well, obviously getting in the mind of Nicola Sturgeon it must have been, it must have been so complex for every argument to, to bring it back to independence every time <laughs> uh, was that hard? No, for the exact reason that you, that you can see. But, you know, there's a lot of social policy and stuff in there, so you did have to learn the detail um, but you always knew what the overarching goal uh, in every debate was going to be and in those, in those preparations would Ed Miliband say uh, look, Kizzy, I, I, I don't think Nicola's going to say that. You know, come on. Uh, yeah, that is remarkable. Um, yeah, that's exactly um, 
how he responded. Uh, but he would do that for all of them. He always thought his advisors were, were wrong and he would, he, not in a bad way, he was so worried about this being the defining moment of the election campaign. He, he thought, and I guess he was right in a way, that if he didn't come across well in that, if it, it, would, you know, it would lead to a turn in the polls, that he would pay the price of that. So he was like, you know, wrought with anxiety about how this was going to go. But, you know, I, I was the only Scot in the room. Um, like, I don't think there was anybody in, um, in the country at that time that took greater care to understand what she represents and why she thought what she did than I did, because it was my day job as well. I was doing First Minister's questions at the time as deputy leader because Jim was an MP. Yeah. So I, was, I had Stockholm Syndrome. I was in her head. <laughs> And in terms of your relationship with the other leaders, because obviously it's been a, a, a ferocious time at a UK level and at a Scottish level with, you know, two constitutional referendums, various Holyrood elections and, and UK elections and, and two big divisive constitutional issues. Is your relationship with, with Nicola Sturgeon and with Ruth Davidson and with other people across the political divide positive and has it always been, if so? I would like to think so, yes, and you can, you can ask Nicola next week whether she feels the same way. There's definitely a, a mutual respect there, I think, which comes with um, the kind of weight of leadership. And obviously it's a bit different when you're First Minister of the country as well as leader of the party because you have to worry about you know, how much traffic there is on the MA or you know, what the next big thing is going to become a problem. But the weight of leadership is something that we've all experienced, being strong, relatively youthful women in a media dominated by men in a country dominated by men that comes with a lot of sort of um, commonality to it as well which we, we could share the sisterhood of that did we fall out uh, absolutely uh, I, I fell out with both Ruth and Nicola on different occasions in quite personal ways but I'd like to think um, we've made up over that time as well and how do you how do you repair that then when, when you have a falling out is it face to face and then do you text each other afterwards and go Oh, First Minister, I'm really sorry about that. You know, <laughs> I've had a stressful week. Uh, yeah. Um, sometimes, no, it's never instant because it, it, the world just kind of moves on. But in time, you go back and you say, uh, I, I took that too far. Uh, I'm sorry. I, I, you know, I, I regret that. I would like to have done that differently. And are they, are they political fallings out, whether falling out is, is in political language, or are they as personal as a, a friend falling out? So, oh, that's hard, because I've got these examples in my head, but I, I don't want to share them, because I, I do think they're private. This is a private room. <laughs> you can have private conversations with the First Minister. <laughs> that's a reference for the 2017 election. Um, but they are... Um, yeah, so there, there, are, there are political arguments that have a personal element to them. So um, it's not what you said, it's the language that you used which just went too far and that got under my skin. It's like, it's like Twitter or any aspect of life. People find that nerve, that button, and if, once they've got it, you know whatever they're going to say is going to hurt you mm. because of how you feel about yourself. And it's those types of things, I think, that really hurt. In terms of then the, the experience of leadership, um, was it stressful? Oh, um, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was stressful. Um, it's a huge responsibility, uh, but it's one you take very seriously and you have to accept that your life is not your own. So a, a lot of that is about just giving power uh, away to other people. So you have to understand you're not in control of your own diary. You know, people are going to... Um, 
drive you about the place. They're going to tell you you can't wear that for that because it'll strobe on the telly. Like you're not in control of your own skin, and some of that's quite frustrating. I worked really hard as leader. Like you're not, you're like the Janny. You're the first person up, and you're the last one that goes home, as well as carrying the weight of the whole organisation. And how do you deal with that personal element then? That 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 not. I understand the pressure of the mantle of leadership, not personally, but through talking to other people. And I understand through observing other people that a leader has to behave in a particular way, that people expect a certain standard. How do you maintain that without compromising who you are and becoming someone else? Well, I didn't towards the end. And that was kind of part of why I realised I I had to stand down as leader because I didn't really like the person that I was becoming or the things I was having to do to kind of get on. But at the start, I managed that to directly answer your question by having a really clear plan and sticking to it. So every decision I took, no matter how difficult it was, was through the filter of the plan and the strategy. And that's how I could justify it to myself. When you say you didn't like the person you'd become, what do you mean by that? Well, so over a period of time in in politics, you, you do make enemies you've told a lot of older people no um, and they start looking for people who might say yes uh, and all that kind of starts stewing in the background and just just constantly being in the public eye all the time having to watch what you say never seeing your friends never seeing your family um, and you've got to constantly ask well I didn't actually for a long time and um, understand whether or not I was actually happy and I think you want your politicians to be to be happy so that they make better decisions and uh, better policies in your interest and I, I realized I was unhappy and, and how do you combat that then is, is departure the only option or could you have made yourself happy in leadership yeah, I, I certainly don't regret um, standing down as leader um, I, uh, I know a lot of my close friends kind of regret that I did it and how I did it and might have wanted me to to stay for a a bit longer at least and have some sort of succession plan in place or whatever. But I I knew that if I was going to be in control of how I was going to go, I had to do it almost entirely myself and I had to do it there and then. In terms of your personal ambition, obviously politicians carry with them the the weight of responsibility of the movement and if they're lucky to to end up in a position of first minister or, or, or prime minister, then the hopes and dreams of a nation. But they also have personal ambition. I mean, you you came into politics young, then you're thrust into this deputy and then leadership role. Did you think, well, this is going to fulfil a lifetime ambition to be first minister? Or did you think, I'm doing this because the movement uh, requires it? How much was an ambition for the party and the country and how much was was personal? So I I did, um, I wanted to be deputy leader. I I really did, because I thought that suited my my skill set. The things I was really interested in doing in the party that was the place to do it, it's, it's somebody's wingman or wingwoman. Uh, I let them be at the front, but kind of be at their side and sort all the stuff out that mattered. But if I had one sort of um, political ambition in life, what I really wanted to do was to be an education minister in a Labour Scottish government. That, that for me was the ambition. It wasn't to be first minister. Education is my passion. I, I, I am very proud of some of the policies that we came up with during my time as Labour's education spokesperson and, and then as its leader, um, a number of which were adopted by the SNP, by the way, and are now policies in this country today. I'm really proud of that. That, that was the goal if there was one. So it was, more, it was more a kind of policy aim rather than a, a personal fulfilment. Well, it's to make a difference, isn't it? For me, that's what, what politics is all about. And I believe, and it's the work of my new job, is to make the positive case for representative democracy. I, I think we need to believe that the vast majority of our politicians are good people in it for, for good reason. And we're losing sight of that now. And I wonder where that ends. And do you, 
Because I've always, and I don't know whether you're in a similar place to this, I've always thought that the vast majority of politicians were good people, community-minded, even if I disagreed with them, they just had a different view of what the world should be and how to get there, yeah. but that they all engaged with democracy, that they're all coming from a different perspective based on their own lives and experience. At the moment, particularly in leadership roles, when you look at UK politics, I find it harder to keep that opinion and it's really Brexit and, and Boris and Corbyn and other things have really tested my own opinions about politicians in general. Do you have those same fears? And is there anything you can say that, to reassure me and <laughs> about 65 million people? So, so part of my new job is about researching exactly this, about trust and, and public confidence in, in politics and the system. So if I can give you any sort of encouragement, I guess it would be to say, it's been this shit since 1930. <laughs> so, so all the statistical evidence shows that we have distrusted and disliked our politicians since the 1930s. And it's fair to say that um, recent polls, and I know you spoke to Deborah Mattinson quite recently about this, but the, the Britain Thinks survey shows it is getting worse now, not more but we are on a sort of downward trend in this regard, but it, but it has been a problem for so long that it's almost built into our political system in this country. It is, but it do, there does seem to have been a profound... More amongst people who... Because there's a general view from people who don't really engage with politics yeah. that that's always been... And I get that. And whether it was uh, the miners' strike, the poll tax, Iraq, the financial crash, MPs' expenses, there have always been... You know, every generation has had multiple events that have tested people's faith in the political class. What I think is happening now is that that, is, that that cynicism is also breeding into people who would consider themselves to be political and politically active. Is that something that you've detected in your work? And, and am I right to assume that that's because I feel that way that other people do, or am I just you know, an individual? So, so there's two things about that. We, we have a report coming out soon um, which looks very specifically at um, people's age and their likelihood as a consequence of their age to either trust people or institutions. So this is a bit of John Smith Centre commissioned work that we've yet to publish. But what it says is, roughly, broadly, if you're under 40, you're more likely to trust people than you are institutions. And if you're over 40, it's the other way around. You're more likely to trust institutions like the NHS or the justice system than you are people. And I think a lot of that explains, um, I guess, a bit of the phenomenon around people like Jeremy Corbyn and all the rest of it amongst younger people. But the second thing I'm starting to look at now is this question of, do the public expect their politicians to keep their promises? <laughs> and the answer is no. Um, which I guess uh, took me back a little because I thought that was kind of the point um, but, but not really is the answer no So, um, and we'll do more work on this but, but broadly uh, speaking the public expect uh, politicians to keep their promises if they don't they lose points in terms of favourability as a consequence of that but they don't actually get any points for keeping their promises so there's no incentive, there's no encouragement you can only lose favour, you can't gain it so I think that's really interesting if you think about Boris Johnson just now and, you know, I keep seeing this bus with the 30, yeah. £350 million pounds, uh, written on the side of it and, you know, he, it doesn't actually cost him hugely not to deliver on that promise. Surprise, surprise. I think, I think he knew that from the time. But uh, his way to defeat having to deliver on that promise is to deliver a bigger promise that he made. And that is why we hear repeatedly on our news just now, we will leave the EU by the 31st of October. We will leave the EU by the 31st of October. If he proves that, he's won all of those debates around promise that he needs to. And, and that's, that's quite depressing, really. It is. Um <laughs> 
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. <laughs> In terms of uh, the work you're doing now at the John Smith Centre at the yeah. University of Glasgow is, is looking at the rise of populism and how to combat it and uh, you know, having a more plural and respectful politics and everything else. Uh, if Boris got in touch and said, are you Kizia? Are you the Greek work, by the way, that's being done at the uh, you, John, Adam Smith John, Adam, Adam Smith uh, <laughs> University of... You do great work. I, I, I just, I, I, I'm interested. I, I would like to do. I would like to come there. If, if he offered, if he, if he held out an olive branch and said, "I would like to work with you and and combat the rise of populism." Would he, would he be someone you'd, you'd, you'd consider working with? Well, our mission is to make the positive case for representative democracy. So if he's interested in that, then, then great. I mean, actually, we would love to get funding from the Cabinet Office to do research <laughs> uh, into uh, identity politics and, and the like. And, you know, I hope to make that case in good time. But we don't just do research. We do advocacy and events. And we have what I consider to be quite a groundbreaking pioneering internship programme, trying to give people from non-traditional backgrounds um, the the support they need to break into politics. So we do that with a 10-week um, above the real living wage paid internship programme uh, for students at Glasgow University just now, but we'd like to do beyond that in the future. Um, people can fund that, they can make donations on our website. Uh, it, equally, I think it's the responsibility of both the Scottish and the UK government to care about the diversity of the people who represent mm. us. And they do that. In Scotland, there's a really good scheme around encouraging people with disabilities to stand for elected office. We've got a terrible record in Scotland for BME representation that's got to change so things like that would make a big difference you mentioned identity politics there and it, it's kind of it, it, it's often used in a pejorative way people are sort of scared of identity politics they think well that's a it's kind of it means there's a, a breakdown in the sort of fact-based order if indeed any exists is identity politics something we should fear or is it just a, a sort of a new label for the way that we've always voted i think we should fear um the the fall of evidence-based decision-making. I think that's something to really worry about. I think we want um, elected, elected politicians are there to consider evidence and research and make judgments as a consequence of that. If all we ever want them to do in the future is to be led by their heart, then, then I don't think we'll grapple with some of the big um, questions of our age, how to tackle an, an aging population, how to find the balance between the amazing possibilities of data and people's privacy. These are big questions we're not even talking about in the country just now because of one B word. Boris or Brexit? Brexit, yeah. <laughs> um, you, you, As well as, of course, um, uh, leading the Scottish Labour Party, uh, you also um, are known to the public for, for a, a spell in the jungle in I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Um, how hard a decision was that to go in? Um, well, yeah, it, it, was, it was undoubtedly hard. It wasn't one I took lightly. Um, and so the kind of... The chronology of it was 
I think, I, yeah, my, my birthday was the 28th of August. I resigned on the 29th, and I got an email into my Parliament account the, on the 30th of August uh, from the producer of I'm a Celebrity saying, do you want to be a contestant in this year's show? To which I just laughed. I thought that somebody was pulling my leg. I didn't think, like, if you were going to get that call, they would just email you. I thought something more would, would happen than yeah. that. So I, I said, I instantly said, no, um, don't be ridiculous, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't possibly do that. And they said, well, will you come down to London and talk to us about it? And um, I, I talked to my partner about it and thought, no, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to waste their time. As, as fun as it is to go down and like, float the idea, I'm not going to do it. So they were like, okay, we'll come up. Um, so they came up and we had a, a very long lunch in the Fruit Market Gallery in Edinburgh where they gave me this big um, the Dean Doris type spiel, your majority will go up, everybody's majority always goes up, <laughs> and no bad can come of it. And um, then they went away and, and they made me an offer and I, I turned that offer down because that would have involved being away for five weeks in two days. And I thought, oh no, the, the, they'll never stand for that. But three weeks and two days, <laughs> they, might, they might think that's okay. No, they, they didn't think that was okay. And in terms of doing it, I mean, it's not like other reality shows where, you know, Big Brother's in a house. Love Island is, you know, a, a beautiful place. I mean, would you consider that? <laughs> no, so th I think this is often misconstrued. So the thing about I'm a Celebrity is it's a family show. Yeah. Like, and I think it's part of our kind of British culture just now. Mums and dads and their kids can sit down and watch it together as a family in a way that, you know, the Generation Game was 20 years ago. There's no, there's no real swearing. It's just a bit of nonsense with a few bugs thrown in. So, like, it's light-hearted entertainment yeah. TV. It's not salacious in any way. It's not Big Brother. It's, and it's definitely not Love Island. But, did you, but I suppose what I was saying was that the other reality shows are, are filmed in more pleasant locations. You're in the jungle <laughs> having to eat anuses and maggots or whatever. Yeah. I mean, did you think, this is going to be too squeamish for me. I don't want to have to eat a grub or something like that. No, so they, they, um, so they interview you beforehand around things like, what, what are you scared of? Like, what are you really scared of? Oh. <laughs> And I had the next election. <laughs> yeah. I had enough smarts about me to, to not tell them what, yes. what I was actually really scared of. Yeah, I'm so. really scared of chocolate. Gold. <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing I am actually genuinely really scared of is birds, which is quite ironic in a way. But <laughs> pigeons especially, uh, and seagulls. So, like, they're asking me what you're really scared of. In my head, I'm going, birds, 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 birds. Beasties, anything with eight legs. So that, that didn't bother me at all. If they had locked me in a cage with, you know, 100 pigeons, I, I, would, no, I would not be sitting here now. In terms of the other people you were on with... Yeah. Amir Khan, Dennis Wise. Yeah, yeah. I mean, did you strike up friendships with any of these people? Have you kept in touch with any? Yeah, so we have a, a, a WhatsApp group called Bushwhackers. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's still going. I'm a bit less now than it was, but yeah, we're all still in touch. And did you, did you think, because obviously part of the reason you went in, I remember at the time, was to just show that politicians can be normal people. There must have been a hope that actually people would see you on there and go, actually... I really like Kezia Dugdale, I'm going to find out what about politics or about the Labour Party, about Labour issues or anything like that. Did that happen in the jungle? Did you have Dennis Wise going, you know what, I've never thought about seizing the, the means of production before. <laughs> I think the part privatisation of the tube was actually the right decision. No, I didn't really have any uh, political conversations with um, 
obviously with Stanley, but um, the only other person I really talked to about politics was Shappy Kersandi um, and, uh, and Toff. Like, Toff was quite interested in politics. I didn't realise she was such a rampant Tory when I was in there. I discovered that when I came out. But yeah, there was no talking to Dennis Wise about, about politics. He wasn't interested. He, he does, like, he's got a big property company. He wanted to talk about, like, house building. I didn't have a huge amount of chat for him on that. But yeah, that, that was a story. So, as you say, you remember Stanley Johnson, Boris's yeah. dad. Was he all right? He was all right. And do you know what? Um, so that was the last time the Bushwhackers WhatsApp um, kind of took off was <laughs> when Boris became Prime Minister and everybody on it's going, yay, Stanley, well done. Your son's the Prime Minister and I'm just <laughs> slow hand clapping. <laughs> um, but, which was really sweet in a way. But um, actually, you know, he did me a real service at one point in the jungle, which, which you, wouldn't, you wouldn't have seen on telly. And so um, maybe I can tell you about it now because I'll be forever grateful to him for it. So there was um, one of the trials that they do, uh, you do the public vote over who's got to go and do this, and Becky Vardy and Stanley Johnson's names had come up, and the idea was that somebody was going to be locked in a cage and turned around like a chicken on a spit, and another person was going to be um, in a disc on the floor going round and round, and you had to kind of get balls from the chicken box down to the flat thing, and then Stanley would be asked a question, and if you got it right, you then got shot, thrown this ball into a thing, and that was a meal. So this was really serious. Um, but um, Becky Vardy got ill and uh, she couldn't do it. Um, your blood sugar is always really low in the jungle because you're not eating enough, so people get dizzy really quickly and then they won't put you into a trial if they think you might faint because that's just not good telly. <laughs> um, so, not a welfare issue. Yeah, I was asleep in my uh, hammock and the, the Becky Vardy comes back into the camp and she said, Kez, you, you've got to go. And I'm like, what? And she said, well, you were next in the public poll. You need to go and do this thing. And I'm, I was so dizzy by that point. Um, I was like, right, okay. And it takes ages to get to where they do the trials. The, the camp is massive. So it takes like you know an hour, an hour and a half to, once you crossed all the bridges and moved from all the different sites to get where it's happening. So this must have been quite far into my stay and I'd lost a lot of weight quite quickly, which on one hand was fantastic. <laughs> And on the other hand, none of my clothes fitted me, so my trousers were hanging off me. And the producer of the programme starts describing to me this task, and you're going to be locked in this box, you're going to have your arms and your legs strapped down, and we're going to tip in 30,000 different types of beastie uh, into this box, and we're going to turn you around, so they're going to be floating around you the whole time that you're in there. And I just kind of looked at my trousers, and I could pull them out, and they were maybe five, six inches from my actual skin. And I was like, I, I need a belt. Like, this is not okay. <laughs> I need a belt. And I was like, Stanley, I, like, I, I need a belt. I can't do this. Like, they're just going to get everywhere. That's disgusting. And I'd lost my belt on the first day doing the fish tank thing where I had to climb through the yes. fish guts that had sickle sturgeon on it. And I, I, I ditched my belt because it, it was so smelling of fish. That I, I wasn't making any friends going in late as it was, but smelling of fish as well was a reason to get rid of it. So... Um, the producers were like, no, we don't have time. You've got to go and do this. We're on track. We've got to do this by whatever time. And Stanley was like, no. And Stanley was just like, he, he sat, had a sit-down protest. So he said, get the producers on the mic. And the producer came over with a microphone to everybody in the camp. And he said, tell them I'm not moving until someone brings Miss Dugdale a belt. <laughs> and right enough, about 20 minutes later, some poor guy had to come along, strip off and give me his leather belt and I had to strap it round. So I loved that for the sort of left-wing protest that it represented. A, a sit-down from Stanley Johnson to save my bacon. Oh, good on him. I mean, how did, um, how did being, you know, 
stuck in a tombola wheel full of insects compared to leading the Scottish <laughs> Labour. Oh, God, there's, there's, there's too many press in the audience, I can see them, um, to answer that. It, it, well, it was, it was quite short-lived, the, the, the leadership. <laughs> <laughs> No, it was fine. I found it really. I wasn't bothered by the bugs. So it, that was the worst thing about the bugs is that they smelt really bad. It's not so much the fact that they're on your skin. You, you just stink. And then there's no hot water afterwards unless you boil it, and it takes two hours to have a wash and blah blah blah. So it's just in terms of watching it as a show, it's definitely in the jungle. One hundred percent in the jungle. It's, it is very very real. And there's no like TV trickery with it. There's no, they don't, they're not bringing you in Nando's and Wagamama's. Uh, they are absolutely not. So there's, there's the, the camp that you see on the telly, which looks tiny on the telly, but it's actually quite big. And there's a parameter around that of security guards. You can't, um, can't see them, but sometimes you could hear them when it was really quiet. Um, and they're there with infrared glasses on, mostly to stop people trying to escape. Like, if MD's ever um, watched it since the beginning, I think Tara Palmer Tompkinson actually did yes. climb up and almost get out. And the reason they have the infrared glasses is because of the snakes um, that, that could, um, actual real wild snakes that could get into the camp. So there's a lot of um, wildlife there. There's, there's rats in the there are bulldog uh, frogs um, on the path and it rained the whole time I was there so it'd be really muddy at night and you'd have to go out under the cover to go and pee and you would stand on these bulldog frogs which were massive and get a real fright uh, wild turkeys walking about the place is very very real there's no sugar coating it, it I mean, compared to other reality shows, it's probably the most severe to do. I mean, are there any others where you think, you know, well, I've done, I'm a celebrity now, so I might be able to do something else? No. And would you want to do any more reality telling? No, I mean, it is what it represented at, at that time. It's a decision I made. Um, I, I don't regret it. I regret the impact it had on people very close to me, which was not nice or cool. Um, but... I, I don't regret it. I would be being dishonest if I said that, that I was. What about something like Come Dine With Me, where you could have, you know, you, Nicola and Ruth, and Patrick Harvey could go round to each other's houses and, and cook each other dinner for charity? Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd be totally up for that. I think that's a great idea. I, I saw Ruth's t uh, Twitter this morning. She can do meringues and stuff. She did Bake Off. She did uh, Channel 4's Bake Off programme. I don't think Nicola can cook. Really? I don't think that's a massive secret, but like she's, she's, I was going to say she's quite reliant on her husband. That's a terrible sentence. That's not what I mean. Like, she, she's not interested in cooking. I wonder what, I mean, so what's she just having beans on toast all the time? I have no idea what she eats, but I, <laughs> I, I, I think she's too busy running the country to be making slap up meals night after night. It's just a, just the fact that anyone couldn't cook, I suppose, is quite surprised. Let alone someone who's so powerful. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I love to cook, but I equally understand other people don't and will just grab food when they can. I guess it's just a personal preference. Uh, you were in the news fairly recently uh, for um, winning your case against uh, Wings Against Scotland. Wings um, over Scotland. Wings over Scotland. What did I say? Wings Against Scotland, I which I kind of agree with. Kind of but... agree with, yeah. Um, and this is the... Um, he calls himself a reverend. Mm -hmm. Stuart Campbell, is that his name? Yeah. Uh, based in Bath, naturally, and he um, is a, a pro-independence blogger who tried to sue you for defamation and lost. Uh, and as well as that case, the Labour Party was covering your legal fees and then stopped. So there was a genuine fear at, at one point that you would face bills of 200 grand upwards. 
Why didn't the Labour Party agree to support you throughout the whole process? I don't know if it was going to be 200 grand upwards, but it was definitely looking like six figures, and it was enough to make me really panic because that was two or three times the equity I had in my house and any money I would have. So it did feel, when they pulled the rug from me, like, you know, the, the sky could fall in. Uh, and that was... Uh, this is not new in any way, but I've, I've described it before as quite heartbreaking because I devoted the whole of my adult life to this thing, this precious institution called the Labour Party. You know, when I was working um, here actually at the university in my early 20s, doing a nine to five job, I would, I would leave at five and go and door knock for the Labour Party for three hours. I would do it all weekend. I then started to work for it as an organiser. You and I both trained to be Labour Party organisers at, at the same time in, in 2005. And then, you know, then I worked for politicians and still did all of that campaigning. It, it was my everything. And for me, the, the, the Labour Party represents a sort of sense of fairness and justice and, and standing up for, for decency and, and good values to call out bullying when you see it. Um, and I was leader of the party when I wrote that newspaper column. I felt like um, they should have been there for me. Do you think it was politically motivated? Uh, yeah, I do. Um, although I'm not wholly convinced after this whether somebody who was a die-hard Corbyn supporter would be provided with legal support if they were in um, the same amount of trouble. And I tried to make that argument at the time because some of my, my colleagues in the uh, Scottish Parliament um, were doing very brave things. Um, people like Neil Finlay taking on um, you know, huge medical companies who were making mesh products that were making women uh, very, very unwell. You know, He could equally have been sued by a big pharmaceutical company for the yes. things he was about that or another of my colleagues Monica Lennon has regularly campaigned against um, big companies who build incinerators in working class communities that's risky stuff and I think people expect just a little bit of cover um, to say and do the right things to speak the truth to power especially when you're under threat of legal action like that. In terms of wings over Scotland and what it represents I suppose in a way it's the first of a new online political culture and a lot of these things were first rose to prominence in Scotland in the 2014 referendum. Bloggers having more influence than traditional media. Um, arguably straying into things like fake news. Uh, graphics being shared hugely in online communities in a way that traditional media and, and traditional politics were finding it very hard to deal with. Phrases like the MSM, the mainstream media, Red Tory, these all came from the movements in those, in those referendums. In terms of your work in the John Smith uh, centre, are things like that part of your remit to look at and understand? So we've got to be quite careful that we don't um, try and take on every big battle um, in the world, as tempting as it is. <laughs> uh, but we, we are looking at reasons why people um, don't enter politics. And the, the biggest single reason why people don't um, consider standing for elected office is because how they uh, think politicians are portrayed online. So actually the public or citizens look at social media and think, God, I couldn't do that. I, I, I couldn't be under that amount of scrutiny or face that much abuse or go through what they go through. That's not for me. And that's really dangerous if people who really have something meaningful to contribute to our country based on their work experience, based on their values, based on who they are, but feel that politics isn't for them because they don't have you know, the skin of a rhino. I think we should all be collectively very worried about that. 
Yes, uh, I agree. Well, let's, let's ask the public uh, for, for questions. We do have a roving mic. Let's take the lady down at the front. Just wait for the microphone to come to you. Do let us know your name. And, uh, and a question for Kezia, please. Is the microphone on? Just bear with us, sorry. It does help if it's switched on. Sorry about that. Yes, uh, we will try and find a roving mic that works. And you might just have to shout if that's okay. Shout your question and I'll repeat it. No, no, the question's for you. The question's for me? <laughs> yeah. Oh dear. You've really pointed at me when you said that. That's right. You were talking a lot about how politicians are perceived. Yes. Um, I'm talking a lot about how politicians are perceived. And how unpopular they are. And how unpopular they are. How, how, much do you, how much responsibility do journalists bear for that? How much responsibility Bearing do journalists bear for that? Throughout this uh, uh, interview, yes. you have referred to the British Prime Minister by his cosy name of Boris. By his first name as Boris. But you refer to the leader of the Labour Party, the British yeah. Labour Party, as Corbyn. Yes. What does that tell people? Do you even that tells me that Jeremy Corbyn's surname is Corbyn and Boris's first yeah. name is Boris. So do, do you even know you're doing it? Well, yes because the words come out of my mouth. So I'm aware as it happens. Uh, the reality about Boris, I've heard this quite a lot. People say, oh, you shouldn't call him Boris. That's what everyone calls him. And I don't think that's where the, I don't think calling him Johnson is gonna defeat him, frankly. He's taking on his ideas and campaigning on a, on a policy platform that people will support. I think it's a borderline conspiracy theory that if you call people Boris, it, it, it augments him. I genuinely don't think it does. He's known as Boris. Donald Trump is known as Trump. Blair was known as Blair, sometimes known as Tony. It's just the way, if you're, if you're communicating to an audience, you have to do it in a language that people are on side with. I'm not a journalist, so I don't know uh, how much responsibility. No, you seem surprised. <laughs> I don't know whether that's a compliment or not. I'm not a journalist, no, I'm a, I'm a comedian. I mean, I granted, I've not d demonstrated too much evidence of that. <laughs> Arguably over the entire festival, if you read some of the reviews, but uh, thank you. I mean, I think all of us who deal with politics, to, to take the question in the spirit that it was meant, I think we all have responsibility to talk about politics in a way that isn't exclusive, that is uh, respectful, as far as it can be, but, you know, holds people to account. But genuinely, I've heard a lot of people say the Boris Corbyn thing. I think, you know, people, Thatcher, Blair, Major, all the rest of it. Boris has an unusual name. That's what people have always called him. And, I, you know, frankly, it's just stuck. And I think most people call him Boris, and I don't think... Changing that is, is how you defeat him, should you think he needs to be defeated. So, let's have a question for Kezia. Uh, yes, a very definite arm in the air there. Hello, Kezia, I'm James. Hi. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn will become Prime Minister and Richard Lennon the first time to start? Do you think Jeremy Corbyn will become Prime Minister? I mean, some serious questions would be nice. That's what we call a, a, a soft soup, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that. People who are in the business of winning elections think more than normal people do about electoral math and the actual practicalities of how you win. So on the basis of the electrical, the electrical, the electoral math, rather than any perceived political view I might have, because I'm in a non-partisan role now and I have to be very careful about how I talk about these issues, I think it looks very unlikely that Jeremy Corbyn could win a general election. And my reason for that is that he either has to do tremendously well in Scotland or he needs to do tremendously well in Labour-Tory marginals in Middle England. And there's n nothing that I see from the policy platform at the minute which is designed to capture those particular pools of voters. Um, so 
I, I, as much as I would love for that to happen, I want to see a, a Labour government. I don't think I can hide that given what I've done for the whole of my life. I, I think it's very difficult. Um, and that's before you factor in um, what would happen in a general election dominated by the question of Brexit. Because whether we like it or not, um, it will be dominated by that one question and you'll see a, a, a consolidation of people around both the Leave and Remain camps and they will vote for whatever candidate is the strongest Leaver or Remainer in their constituency, whatever that might be in the United Kingdom. And again, that doesn't play to Labour's favour at the minute. What about... That was quite uh, diplomatic, wasn't no, it? Very diplomatic, yeah. Uh, I, I think the short answer is no. <laughs> uh, just in terms of... Because John McDonnell, obviously, at this festival, suggested that um, you know, he seems to be making overtures to, to the SNP. Corbyn might not be able to command a majority on his own, but in a volatile election where the Brexit party might eat into the Tory vote, the Lib Dems might eat into the Tory and the Labour vote, yeah. you might end up with Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of a minority administration with some sort of arrangement with the SNP in return for... Uh, another referendum on Scottish independence. Is that something that you could see happening? Oh, 100%, and I, and I predicted this. I said it in my final interview as leader. I mean, if you are looking at the electoral math, because you have to, then, uh, and you're John McDonnell, who's a very smart and astute man, by the way, um, you have to work out what your path to power is. And, you know, if, if you are um, John McDonnell and you know, uh, and Nicola Sturgeon comes to your door, for example, and says, John, I will vote for every one of your budgets for the lifetime of a parliament and give you the um, stability that, that a Labour government would need in a minority situation. And all I want in return is for you to grant a Section 30 order so we can have a second independence referendum. And you represent uh, a London seat and you haven't experienced what many of us experienced in 2014, then you think, that sounds like a belter of an offer, does it not? And I think that's what we saw when he was, was here last week, was those overtures uh, to the SNP, you know, even the choice of language, an English parliament. Yes. I, I feel like that was um, entirely what that, what that was about. Right. So, so any more questions for... Because you do indicate clearly so that I can see you, just uh, stick your arm in the air. Oh, there's one right at the back there who's waving. Sorry about this. Hopefully the microphone will work this time. Keep your arm in the air so that we can see and we'll get the, uh, the microphone across to you. Um, just, just in terms of that, that you know, Labour-SNP relationship, is that something, as a former Labour, you know, leader of Scottish Labour, you would be happy to see? Or would you think that would be a betrayal of Labour values? Well, the Labour Party is not a nationalist party, uh, and it, it, in fact, it's, in, it's increasingly unionist. Because um, if you were, if you were an independent-supporting Labour voter, uh, you don't vote Labour anymore. So it's become more consolidated around the unionist position because many of those voters were so upset by that referendum they've left and they vote for other parties. So, I, 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 but I guess the wider point I'd want to make is, and th this is not my circus anymore. Yeah. Um, if there was to be another independence referendum, I kind of think um, people who care deeply about maintaining the United Kingdom as it currently is need the Labour Party to be strong because if it's a referendum conducted just between um, the SNP and the Tories, then I, I, I suspect you might get a different result. Okay, the, the, the arm waver right at the back. Have we got a microphone to you? Yeah, thank you. Kenzie, I'm very impressed by your, your, your values and attitude. My question is, if Scotland were to become independent and there were an emergence of different parties and realignment of parties, would you consider becoming involved in politics again? <laughs> 
I don't feel like I've left politics. I've left party politics, but it's still my, 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 my kind of every waking moment is the good of politics and the force that it represents. Um, but I, I, get, I got asked this kind of repeatedly after I quit, oh, you'll be back. I, I'm like, really? Because I, do, I don't see it myself. Um, I'm starting a new career now in, in academia. Um, I am, this is week five in my new job. I love it. It's so different kind of culturally um, from what I experienced before. So I think that's unlikely. Uh, that said, I would, I would like to see UK politics evolve and um, for there to be more options for people to vote in elections. I think that's healthy. Uh, I'm increasingly drawn on a personal level to the great need uh, for there to be electoral reform across the UK system. Because yeah. um, this idea that first past the post delivers, delivers stable government. Lovely cricket applause for that. <laughs> The idea that uh, first past the post um, it, you know, provides the stability we're all looking for, I think, has been shot now. So we, we need to consider other options. But in terms of your personal ambition, you are still very young for a politician. I mean, you, you're probably half the age of Jeremy Corbyn. You, you, I mean, there's so much road left. You could still run the John Smith Centre for 20 years, yep. come out the other end, not even 60, and become First Minister of Scotland or, or Prime Minister of the UK. I mean, did you ever have Westminster ambitions at all? Um, no, although I did stand once um, uh, to for so. <laughs> <laughs> I think the one person who voted for you has come to the... Uh, no, that was my girlfriend who definitely didn't vote for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I was um, encouraged to stand once um, in a Westminster selection to stop somebody else uh, from, from getting selected, which is a very Labour thing to do. Oh, very. Uh, and that happened to be in um, the Glenrothes constituency, which my, my girlfriend now represents in the Scottish Parliament. And who is it you were trying to stop? I'm absolutely not going to answer that. <laughs> it's just, I mean, that is, it's, so, it's fascinating how many politicians I talk to. I mean, the MP I first worked for, a guy called Paddy Tipping, who was the MP for Sherwood in Nottinghamshire, went on to become their crime commissioner now in Nottinghamshire. I said, what made you stand? He said, I never wanted to be a politician until I saw the bastard who was going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, I've got to stop him. And that was it. But there must, there's, I think that maybe that's the final straw, isn't it? But they're, they're, those thoughts. But first past the post to make a serious point promotes yeah. that because you end up voting for the person most likely to beat the person you hate. Yeah. And that's the foundation of how we elect people to make our laws across the United Kingdom. Yes. Uh, I'm going to put you on the spot here. This is going to be the final question. But uh, next week, on the 20th, in this room, I'm interviewing Nicola Sturgeon. What do you think I should ask her? If there was one question, if I could say, look, I've spoken to your good friend, Kezia Dugdale, who has suggested this question in a very non-partisan way, what should that question be? God, I wish you'd asked me that beforehand so I could yeah, think I should have tipped something. you off. I've only just thought of it. Maybe, you know, it could be, it doesn't have to be, you know, it could be a personal question, it could be a political. Is there ever a question you never got an answer from? From Nicola Sturgeon. What can you cook? <laughs> <laughs> I guess... Um, the, the thing I so I have a huge amount of respect for her, uh, and I, as I do Ruth Davidson, and I think there is a sort of golden time. Uh, you might think that's a bit too indulgent when you had three female leaders in Scottish politics doing their thing and doing it really well. I thought for yeah. a period of time. So I, I do have a huge amount of respect for her. Where I never quite accepted her answer, and I would repeatedly put it to her in uh, First Minister's questions, is why she wasn't bolder on the question of tax. So if she's 
different from Alex Salmond in that she's a more left-wing figure um, who cares more about public services and the power of the state to intervene in people's lives and make them better, why not argue for higher taxes to fund better public services? I'd like a really good answer on that, which is not just because rich people will leave, which I think all the evidence says just isn't true. Well, I look forward to asking that on your behalf. <laughs> falling out with Nicola Sturgeon. I'm coming next week, by the way. I've got tickets, so I'm going to hold you to that. Well, Kessie, this has been an absolute, um, <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for coming. Give it up for Kessie Dugdale. There you go, Kezia Dugdale, what a fantastic guest. And I mean, you just obviously get the impression with Kezia, she's got so much time left and she's already achieved so much. So I'm sure there is a future for her, whether it's in Holyrood or Westminster or elsewhere, who knows. But when you sit opposite someone who is so bright and talented and has learned so much from leadership and is still so young, that can't be the last I'm sure that we hear from Kezia Dugdale, but the work she's doing with the John Smith Centre is worth keeping an eye on. Um, I've put a link to that in the show notes so that you can follow the work um, that the John Smith Centre does. Um, and my next guest on the political party is the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, so that'll be out in a few days. The political party will return to the other Palace Theatre in September, where my guest will be Kenneth Clark. Till next time, see you in a bit. <laughs> 